Corinthians chapter 12. The Greek word charisma is an exciting word for us as believers. It's translated in the Bible gift, and it means a free gift. It's really from the root word charos, which means grace. And so it's a gift of grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It's unearned. The Bible tells us that salvation is a charisma, a gift. Very familiar verse, Romans 6.23, uses the word charisma. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so eternal life is a charisma. Eternal life is a free gift. But that's not all. That would be enough. But God also gives us other gifts in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says there are a variety of charisma, a variety of gifts. Everyone who has received the gift of eternal life also has received another gift, a spiritual gift. And chapter 12, verse 11 says the Spirit distributes to each one individually just as he wills. And so every Christian has a spiritual gift, perhaps more than one or perhaps a blend of spiritual gifts that make you unique in the body of Christ. Did you hear about the set of identical twin boys who were born in Rome? Shortly after they were born, they were put up for adoption. One of the identical twins was adopted by a family in Spain where he was named Juan. The other was adopted by a family in Saudi Arabia, and he was named Amal. Juan and Amal never met each other, didn't even know each other existed until as young men, they began to trace their roots, and each discovered that he had biological parents in Rome as well as a brother. And so they talked on the phone and arranged to both travel to Rome for a reunion of their biological family. It was an exciting day for all the family members. They were at the airport waiting, and the news media was there as well to capture this heart-tugging moment. Juan's flight arrived from Spain, and he met his parents and his other relatives, and they were so happy to meet their long-lost relative. They found out that Amal's plane was delayed and was going to be delayed for several hours, and so the family left the airport and told the uncles, you wait here, and when Amal arrives, you bring him to the house. And The uncle said, well, I've never seen Amal before. How in the world will I recognize him? And they said, well, that's easy if you've seen Juan, you've seen them all. That was a groaner, okay? In the church, if you've seen Juan, you haven't seen them all. Because in the body of Christ, there's no such thing as spiritual identical twins. Nobody is exactly alike. We are all different. You are especially and uniquely gifted as a child of God. God has gifted you to serve the Lord, and he has gifted you like no one else. 
And we are to use our gifts to minister to one another and to build up the body of Christ until, as Ephesians 4.13 says, we all attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Interesting goal. Our goal as the corporate body of Christ is to be in character like the incarnate body of Christ. Now, Jesus was here in his human body. He has now ascended to heaven, and now he indwells every believer, and he refers to us collectively as his body. Today, the world can't see Christ by going over to Israel and looking him up. Instead, to see Christ, they have to look at us. And so it is our responsibility to manifest Christ through us to the world. And the way we accomplish that is by using our spiritual gifts to serve and build up one another in the body of Christ. In fact, one of the simplest ways to look at spiritual gifts is that they are expressions of the characteristics of Christ. If you want a perfect example of every one of the spiritual gifts, Jesus is that example. For instance, there's a gift of prophecy. Did Jesus prophesy? Yes. Was he the best? Yes. There's a gift of teacher. Did Jesus teach? Yes. Was he the best? Yes. There's a gift of mercy. Did Jesus have mercy? Yes. Was he the ultimate example of mercy? Yes. There's a gift of faith. Did Jesus live by faith? Yes. Is he the ultimate example of that? Yes. You see, we as the corporate body of Christ need to allow his characteristics to manifest through us as we use our unique gifts to serve each other and build up the body of Christ. You say, well, Dan, that's great, but I don't know what my gift is. Well, in the next few weeks, several weeks, we're going to go over a list of the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament. And as we do, I want to challenge you to look into, into and listen to each one of these gifts and pray about which one or combination of gifts God may have given you. Now, it's interesting that the Corinthian church had all the gifts. Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 1-7, you are not lacking in any gift. And yet, even though they had all the gifts, they had disunity in their body. And so Paul is writing to them in these chapters, chapters 12 to 14, to let them know that that's not the way to handle spiritual gifts. You see, they had spiritual gifts, and they exalted one over another. And they looked around and said, I want the gift that that person has instead of the gift that I have. And they divided up in the body of Christ. And Paul's point in this passage is that the uniqueness and diversity that they have in their giftedness is not for the purpose of dividing them, Their diversity is for the purpose of interdependence among them. Because I have one gift and you have another, it says to me, I need you to function in the body of Christ. And that's his point in this passage. And even as he lists the gifts, and he does so in verses 8 to 10, he kind of points this out as he does so because he says, if you'll notice those verses, he says, to one, to another, to another, to another. But he also says, by the same Spirit, by the same Spirit, by the same Spirit. We each one have a unique gift, but we get that gift from the same Spirit because the goal of our giftedness is that we would be united 
and function as the body of Christ. Now, this morning, we're going to start going through this, get, this list, and I'll prepare you for the fact this will probably take mm, six, seven, eight weeks. Okay, so, in fact, I'm optimistic. I got four listed on your bulletin. We'll be lucky if we get three. But that's okay, because we need to take our time and look at these. But let me tell you something about gifts. Uh, when you look at gifts, sometimes it's a little frustrating because it's hard to define just exactly what a gift is. Because sometimes in Scripture, all we have is the name of the gift. There's nowhere in Scripture where it says, here's the definition of that gift. So oftentimes, as I look at a gift, I find sometimes it's hard to define it, but oftentimes I can look at a person and say, that person, I think, has what this gift is talking about. Sometimes that person might be in Scripture. Sometimes that person may be somebody I know in the body of Christ. For instance, when we get to the gift of mercy, there are certain people that I look around and say, that person really exudes what I see mercy as being. I'm not sure I can put it all into uh, words, but I, I know it when I see it. So we're going to go through these together. Some of these gifts I'll have more to say about. Some I'll have less to say about. But let's begin in verse 8 with the first gift. And the first gift in verse 8 is the word of wisdom. Now, the early chapters of 1 Corinthians dealt a lot with the subject of wisdom. And there was a clear contrast there between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And Paul make, made it very clear that the world does not think like God thinks, and God does not think like the world thinks. Now, every believer is wise. We all have the Spirit of God, and he teaches us the mind of God. But there are some believers who have a gift that goes beyond that, and that gift is the word of wisdom. Now, let me give you my simple definition of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. That's it. In James chapter 1 and verse 5, James says that in the midst of trials, if you don't understand why you're going through a trial, you're to do what? Ask for wisdom. In the midst of a trial, when things are going wrong, sometimes we have a difficult time figuring out what God is doing, and he says you need wisdom. What is wisdom? Getting God's perspective on your situation. Now, we usually get that after the trial. We can look back and say, now I see what God was doing. He's saying in the midst of the trial, we need wisdom. We need to get ourselves lifted up above the circumstances so we can view that from God's perspective and say, I see that God's doing something here bigger than just the circumstances of my life. It's kind of like the guy who looks at a picture and he, he's beautiful you know, uh, a painting, like the paintings in the back of the room, and, and you walk up and put your nose against the painting, and you say, well, all I see is dots and blurs. And somebody needs to come back and say, well, we need to put you in the right perspective to view the painting. And sometimes we're so close to our situation that all we see is the dots and the blurs, and we say, how could God be doing anything in the chaos that I see? And God says, let me show you some wisdom if you step back and look at it from my perspective, 
those dots and those blurs are all part of a beautiful picture that blends together in what I'm doing in your life. You see, that is wisdom. And some people possess a spiritual gift to be able to see situations from God's perspective, and because it's called the word of wisdom, they're not only able to see that situation, but they are able to articulate that situation into an application for your life. And I think oftentimes this gift will involve the application of Scripture. I find a lot of times as Christians, we know what the Bible says, but when it comes time to apply it to our home, to our family, to our workplace, to our church, we seem to be clueless. I have people come into me and they talk to me about a situation they've got going on in their life, and as they talk about it, I listen to them for a while and I say, you know what, you just told me what you should do. And, and we sort of know what to do, but we don't see how to take the truth of God's Word and apply it to our situation. There's a gift of the Word of Wisdom to be able to look at a particular situation and say, here's what you need to do in this situation. Here's God's perspective, and here's how to apply that given your circumstances. Solomon I think, had the equivalent of this gift in the Old Testament. Because in 1 Kings 3.12, we're told that God gave him a wise and discerning heart. Remember the time the two women came to him and both said they were the mother of the same baby. And Solomon said, well, all right, what we'll do here is we'll cut the baby in half and I'll give each of you half the baby. And the lady who said, no, she can have the baby, Solomon perceived to be the mother. That's wisdom. Have you ever sat in a committee meeting trying to resolve a problem that was really sticky? I see all the elders going, yeah, we've we've been in that meeting. And you're sitting there and you're looking at a problem and it's kind of like, I don't know how you deal with this problem. And somebody speaks up and just says, well, you know, the Bible says this, and if we just apply that to this situation and do this, this, and this, it'll work. And everybody goes, why didn't I think of that? You know, that that makes total sense. That's the application of the truth of God. And I think that is the word of wisdom, being able to see things from God's perspective and then to speak that out in practical ways to a particular circumstance. Second gift is also in verse 8, and it's the word of knowledge. Now, some say the word of knowledge is the ability to understand the word of God. It's the ability to observe biblical facts and make conclusions, and so they link these first two gifts by saying the word of knowledge is Bible knowledge, And the word of wisdom is the application of that knowledge. Now, I don't think that's the idea here, but I am thankful to God for men who have spent years of their life just studying particulars relative to knowledge. I mean, I use my concordance almost every... I got a concordance that I could kill somebody with. 
And I use it every day, and I think back, some guy had to sit down and do that work for me to be opening that up and finding all that helpful information. He spent years of his life detailing verses, and, and somebody did that. It's true of Greek lexicon. Somebody spent all that time, critical commentaries. Somebody with knowledge beyond mine did those things. And I've known people that have a whole lot of Bible knowledge but don't seem to be able to apply it, but I don't think that's a gift. So when he talks here about the word of knowledge, I don't think that's what he's talking about, just someone who has great knowledge of the Scriptures. Let me tell you what I think the word of knowledge is. I think the word of knowledge is the ability to know what you didn't know you knew. Did I talk too fast for you? To know what you didn't know you knew. Let me give you an example of that. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And Jesus says to her, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you said that right, because you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. You say, how did he know that? Well, he's God. But there's an expression of the body of Christ, incarnate, with a word of knowledge. Let me give you another example. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property. They bring part of the money to the church under the pretense that they're giving it all, and they lay it down. I'm sure everybody applauded. I'm sure anyone who saw them do that said, man, that's impressive. What did Peter say? Where's the rest of the money? How did he know that? The gift of knowledge. The word of knowledge. The ability to know what you didn't know you knew. It's a very valuable gift in the area of counseling. Sometimes you counsel with people and they come in and they tell you all about their problem. And what they're telling you has nothing to do with their problem. Somebody with the gift of knowledge can say, you know, your real problem is this. And they put their finger on the issue that really needs to be dealt with. That's a spiritual gift to be able to do that, the word of knowledge. Third gift in verse 9 is faith. Now, as is the case with many of these gifts, all Christians have faith faith. If you don't have faith, you're not a Christian. And all of us are encouraged to have more faith. But some have the gift of faith. Now, how do you recognize somebody who has the gift of faith? Well, to help us understand the positive aspects of faith, let me just take a moment and remind you of the negative aspects of faith. There are five times that Jesus turned to the disciples and said, Oh, you of little faith. And interestingly, all five of those occasions are in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to take you back for a moment to the Gospel of Matthew and see what the disciples were doing when Jesus said, 
you have little faith. Because if we understand what they were doing wrong, then we can flip that and find out what positive faith really is. So go back, first of all, to Matthew chapter 6. Familiar passage, verse 30. Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, interestingly, just prior to this, Jesus had called the 12 disciples. And the Bible tells us they left everything and followed him, left everything behind. Now they're in a different situation. They're, they got the clothes on their back, They got their meal for today. They're really not sure what's going to be their next meal or how they're going to replace these clothes. Now, I would have guessed that if you went when they were mostly fishermen and you said, are you trusting in God? They would have said, yeah, we trust God. But when they were fishermen, they had their job. They knew they could catch their fish, sell their fish, buy their clothes, buy their food. They probably had a walk-in closet like you do with clothes in there. They probably had a pantry with food there. So you say, well, are you trusting God? And they say, yeah, we're trusting God. It's easy to trust God when I already have those things that I'm trusting for in my hands. Now they've walked away from all that, and they're getting nervous. They're starting to worry. You ever worry? They're starting to worry about what they're going to get next. And Jesus says to them, oh, you have a little faith. Can you relate to that? I can It's easy to trust God for clothes when i got a walk-in closet. I just walk in there and pick a color. It's easy to trust God when I've got a pantry full of food. I just open it up and pick the flavor. But when I don't see those things, when they're not already in my hand, and I start to get anxious and I start to worry, Jesus says, that's little faith. Now, move over couple chapters to Matthew chapter 8. Now the disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and there's a tremendous storm, and Jesus is asleep. And verse 25 says, and they came to him and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Interesting. They could believe the Lord would take care of them as long as there were no waves. They believed that God was going to protect them until the storm hit and then their faith quit. And we can be that way too. We talk big, don't we? Yes, I trust the Lord. I'm confident in God. I believe in the Lord until the storm hits. 
until you lose your job, until you lose a family member, until you lose your health, until you find yourself in a situation where you can't figure out how in the world God's going to solve that problem and your faith ends. And Jesus says, that's little faith. Move over to chapter 14 of Matthew. Familiar passage. Peter is out of the boat walking on the water. Notice verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter could believe God until he noticed the wind and the waves, which is pretty absurd because as if he could walk on water if it was a calm day. But he's out, he's walking on the water, he's expressed faith, but then he realizes, you know what, I'm way beyond my means. And he starts to focus on the negative things, the storm and the waves, and he begins to sink. He realizes he's in a situation that is humanly impossible, and he runs out of faith. You ever been there? You ever get started by faith, and you're out in the middle of something, and then you realize, I can't do this? That's Peter. Jesus says that's little faith. And then look at Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, they're in a boat again. Now, a lot lot of great lessons in boats. They're crossing the sea. Jesus says in verse 6, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they say in verse 7, Oh, no. We forgot bread. And Jesus says in verse 8, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Now, now to understand this passage, you really have to get the context because in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Then in chapter 15, Jesus fed 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. So he feeds 5,000 in chapter 14, 4,000 in chapter 15. Now in chapter 16, they get in a boat, they start across the sea, and what's their biggest concern? We don't have lunch. You see, they believe God for what he provided yesterday, but they have a big problem believing God for what he needs to provide today. And Jesus says, that's little faith. You ever do that? Say, yeah, I believe God provided in the Old Testament for the children of Israel in the wilderness. I believe every bit of that. Yeah, I believe he did miracles in the New Testament. In fact, my testimony says that God has provided for me over and over and over in the past. And yet, when I get to the point of need and I look at my own resources, 
I panic. And Jesus says, that's little faith. And then Jesus says it one more time in Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter and James and John. And we have the transfiguration. And meanwhile, down in the valley, a man came to the disciples who had a demon-possessed son. In fact, his son was so demon-possessed that when the demon took over, he would throw himself into the fire or he would throw himself into the water and try to drown himself. This was a tough case. And they tried to cast this demon out, but they couldn't do so. And so in verse 19 of Matthew 17, they came to Jesus and said, what was our problem? And Jesus says, it was because of your little faith. Now, back in Matthew chapter 10, they had gone out. They had been sent out by Jesus, and they had gone out, and it says they had cast out demons. But now they come on a situation that's a particularly difficult case, and they didn't have enough faith to deal with it which tells me that they could believe God for the minor miracle, but they had trouble believing God for the major miracle. Now, let's summarize. What is little faith? Little faith is the faith that only believes God for the things you already have in your hand or your cupboard or your closet. It's the kind of faith that only believes God as long as there are no waves, that only believes God when I'm in the boat, in my comfort zone, that only believes God for yesterday and not today, and that only believes God for the minor miracles, not the big miracles. That's little faith. So if that's little faith, what is much faith? Well, much faith is believing God when I have nothing in my hand. It's believing God right in the middle of the storm. It's believing God when I'm walking on the water and the wind is howling. It's believing God when there's nothing in the closet and nothing in the cupboard and I can't figure out any way that God's going to resolve my problem. And it's believing God for the impossible. You see, the person with a gift of faith has that kind of ability to believe God and to step out for God. Many, many Christians talk about their faith, but they never take any risks. They talk about their faith, but they never step out. They never take any gigantic steps of faith. Everything is utterly predictable. Everything is utterly calculated. And if it's not calculated, they won't move. And then every once in a while, we run into a delightful character who acts on the promises of God with reckless abandon. You run into that person like Peter who just jumped out of the boat and started walking on the water. He was great for half of that story. They say, if God is God, then what are we waiting for? 
We don't need calculations. We don't need rationalizations. Let's go. And the exciting thing about a person with the gift of faith is that other people usually follow them when they take those steps. We've had people in this church over the course of the history of this church that did that. We've had some uh, major building programs where we get together and get in a room and put a bunch of astronomical figures on the board. What's it going to cost to build a new building? And we look at the figures and everybody sits there hesitantly and quietly. And then someone speaks up and says, that's no problem. Because God has led us this far, and God's going to continue to lead us, let's step out in faith. There is a gift of, we all have faith, we're all challenged to have more faith, but there, God has uniquely placed individuals in the body who has a, have a gift of faith, and the neat thing is that they're able to lead others and stretch others in their faith. Think of a guy like Hudson Taylor who started the China Inland Mission on nothing but a burden for God. You want to read about a guy who had the gift of faith? Read about George Mueller. George Mueller started orphanages. He would sit down many times with the children in the orphanage and he'd give thanks for the lunch that they didn't have. And somehow God would miraculously provide that meal. Those are people of faith. Those are people who have the gift of faith. And we need that gift today. Individuals who will step out in faith and encourage the rest of us who don't have that gift to get out of the boat as well and step out on the water. I think this is a gift that is especially effective in the area of prayer. Because Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22, everything you ask in prayer Believing, you shall receive. Faith activates God. That's why there are certain people that I want to have praying for me because I know that they are people of great faith. And so this gift of faith is very important in the body of Christ because an individual with this gift can activate believers get us moving for God, and can activate God, get God moving for us. The gift of faith. I'm going to stop there. Let me say one other thing in closing. Interesting thing about these first three gifts, they are characteristics we all should have. Wisdom, knowledge, faith. We all have them. We all should be growing in them. And so I don't want you to go away and say, well, I don't have that gift, so I don't have to worry about wisdom. I can be a doofus. Or I don't have knowledge. I don't have to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, as the Word says. I'll let that person with that gift do that. Or I don't have faith. I'll let... No, that's not the point of the gifts. These are characteristics of the body of Christ. We each have Christ in us. We're each to be exemplifying the character of Christ. And so even if I don't have that gift, I'm to be challenged to grow and develop in that area. There are a lot of other gifts like that. There's a gift of evangelism. But we don't leave evangelism to the evangelists. We're all to evangelize. There's a, did you know there's a gift of giving? Some have the, You say, I don't want that gift. 
There's a gift of giving. You probably don't have it if you're saying that. The fact that there's a gift of giving doesn't take the responsibility away from each one of us to give. But that person is that. There's a gift of mercy. We're all to show mercy. And so as we talk about these gifts, they're not an excuse. But obviously, if you have that gift, you're to be using it, and you're to be stepping out of the boat if you've got the gift of faith. You're to be using that word of wisdom, that word of knowledge, to give God's wisdom and insight into situations. And so as we go through the gifts, again, I challenge each of you to be open and honest to what God might be showing you and how God might be showing you that he wants to use you. Now, before we close, I'm going to ask Angela to come forward. This is uh, Angela Herzl. I'm sure you've seen Angela around, and Angela is coming this morning to officially join our fellowship. Um, was that an encouraging word? Okay, thank you. I, I thought that was an objection. So, uh, <laughs> no. So, uh, <laughs> Bill, would you walk her back to the lobby for us? And uh, you go ahead and go out as we close in prayer, and then uh, she'll be out in the lobby for you to encourage as you go out this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful today for charisma, for gifts that are not based on anything we do, but are only based on your character of grace that are undeserved and unwarranted and unearned. And Lord, I thank you most of all for the gift of eternal life, salvation through Jesus Christ. And then when we open that gift, we find that you've given us even more gifts. And Lord, I pray as we do this study through the spiritual gifts that you will give us insight into how you have uniquely gifted us to be used in your body. And Lord, I pray that we would truly view our gift that way, that it's not something we open and enjoy ourselves. It's something we open and use for the benefit of your body, your people, to your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.